find himself becoming way more excited to live in the world of politics than to find yourself in the great story of redemption as found in the Bible. The third way, and you say, is there a third way? The third way is to be an owl, wise and winsome, and primarily a Christian as you approach this cultural moment. And so this morning, I want to give you an opening framework for about how we should be talking about issues of gender and sexuality. Al uh, said, what do you have to feed us today, Pat? And I said, no, it's more like I'm poking and prodding today. When the title of the sermon is This Cultural Moment, you know that the pastor is poking and prodding. And so I can imagine several different ways of preaching this message today. First would be to put on a pastor-counselor hat and to preach in a way that as families are dealing with these very sensitive issues, to issue some pastoral counsel advice. That would be one way. The way I've chosen this morning is to put on my pastor's theologian hat and ask how should we think about cultural engagement in today's world. And so five elements of how we should be talking about issues of gender and sexuality. Are you ready? Here we go. And you're like, you don't really care if we're ready, do you? I'm like, no, we do not. <laughs> First word is repentance. First word is repentance. As the Big C Church, we own up to our past. We're the church that's been quick to condemn and slow to listen. We repent. Where sexual sin has been raised up out of proportion to other sins, we repent. Where sexual sin has been taught to be the unforgivable sin in the church, we repent. Where slander against homosexuality or transgender people occurs in our heart or in the heart of the church, our first word is that of repentance. Repentance is our first word in this important conversation. The second word is understanding. We want to acknowledge that a struggle is occurring, especially amongst the, young, the younger generation. Real struggles. Real questions. Gender dysphoria refers to psychological distress when someone does not identify with the biological sex of their body. And as a church, we do not want to push those struggles to the dark places of the internet, but rather be a place where these silent struggles are brought out into the light in order to experience God's healing. Third word is compassion. We want to model a posture of compassion always on all issues. Sexual struggles are present within every church, within many Christian families. And so we, we want to react not in confused ways or surprised ways, but as pastors, as parents, as friends, as grandparents. We want to respond in compassionate and curious ways as we seek to point people to love and the grace of God. Fourth word in this framework of 
church in its creeds, its promises, its evangelicals. We have our Rabbi Zacharias and our Carl Lindstrom. The Southern Baptist Convention released a sad report just three weeks ago about the sexual abuse within the largest Protestant denomination in America. And it's all very sad. We are all sexually broken people. And so the quicker we come to the table owning our brokenness, the quicker we come to the table to receive the grace of God. There's one element missing in this opening framework, and that is biblical. We simply want to ask simple questions like what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about gender? What does the Bible say about the new sexual revolution of LGBTQ+. Does the church still look to the Bible for its moral authority? I believe it does. Does the Bible still speak with ethical clarity regarding issues of sexuality and gender? I believe it does. And so as we have this conversation, our conversation will be humble, full of repentance, seeking understanding of one another with respectful tones, showing compassion, and standing with two feet solidly upon the Bible. And so what I'm really talking about today is our cultural engagement, the way we engage with culture. As Christians, how do we talk about what everyone is talking about, but in a way, and with a posture, and with a tone that no one is modeling in our larger culture. And I want to say, and what do we need to do that? What do we need to have that conversation? We need a strong community. And so I prepared this, um, this five-session discussion guide, and we'll be talking about this in a bit more detail as a pastor study at 10. And this is what I write. I write, in this era of divisiveness, the church must model a strong community where traits like acceptance, empathy, and listening are the norm within a culture that has forgotten what those traits really mean. This community must be built on love. I'm talking about our community. Our community must be built on love where transparent dialogue about difficult issues can legitimately take Truth-telling in our era is increasingly becoming difficult and even costly to personal relationships. Friends, this need not be the case in the church. Why? Because where true Christian communities practice, such conversations can strengthen relationships and sharpen the body of Christ instead of dividing it like what happens in the world. And so we know that these conversations are not happening in a healthy place in the world. If not in the church, then where? Third question is why? Why not? Why have the conversation at all? Five elements. Again, first, relevant for our times. As a pastor, I've been here five years. I already know you all are talking about these issues. Right? People of all ages about these things, literally people from 14 to 80. 
These questions are on people's minds. Second, biblical worldview. We want to be a church that engages the culture with a biblical worldview. We want to be a place where China equips you to hold and to embrace a biblical worldview in the midst of seismic cultural change. We want to be that kind of church. Third, our faith is a public faith. As Christians, we are called ambassadors. We are witnesses. And hence, we live out our faith in the public square. You see, Christians have never had a privatized faith in 2,000 years of church history, and this has never, ever been an option. Fourth, the accelerated pace of the new sexual and moral revolution. It's underfoot, and it's accelerating. Only ostriches can pretend it's not happening. You see, apologetics used to be about explaining the Christian faith to an unbelieving world. Now apologetics is also about explaining the world to the church. How do we get to the point that claims to moral truth are now embedded in emotional preferences? That's worth thinking about because it gets the very fabric of this new moral and sexual revolution. And finally, why have this conversation at all? Because God's truth always builds us up. The sermon series will not primarily be one long lament or one big polemic. We do not simply want to whine as a church about times gone by when the times were better or when the culture was pure or when the church was more respected. We want to be positively with the question, what does it mean to be gender image bearers created in the very image of God? And so for the next two weeks after this one, there will in fact be very little polemic because I will be talking about biblical masculinity and biblical femininity, but in ways that get beyond the typical discussions we often have about roles in the church. You and I, we should be deeply interested in asking this question, if God is a relational God, and if he created us as relational beings, male and female, then what does it mean to embrace being a deeply masculine man and a deeply feminine woman, gender image bearers as a reflection of our relational God. That is worth thinking about. And so I'm going to give you three snapshots from the scriptures. How do we engage the Bible? And how do we engage this culture, especially in this moment where everything is political? I get cried at. Many of you get cried at. That's the hand that we've been dealt with the cards that we hold in this era. So let me give you three examples of what not to do. Here we go. First snapshot, 8th century, Isaiah the prophet, 8th century B.C. Isaiah 61, great chapter. God says through his prophet, For I, the Lord, love justice. 
the oppression of the poor, the oppression of the marginalized, full stop. And you, if you lay down over this text a modern American political binary, you might say, oh, that sounds progressive, Isaiah Prophet. That sounds like social justice. No, my friends, it is biblical justice, and it is a huge category of the prophets. Do not lay a modern American political binary over the Bible. Second snapshot, fast forward to the first century. A conversation occurs between Jesus and Nicodemus, John chapter 3. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And if you lay a modern American political binary over this text, you might be tempted to say, well, does that mean Jesus supported the moral majority of the late 20th century? That sounds very conservative. No, it's simply the doctrine of regeneration, a huge category of biblical salvation. Do not lay a modern American political binary over the text of Scripture. You will always muzzle the Scriptures if you do. Fast forward to the late first century to the Apostle Paul. Galatians 3.28. Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And someone might say, is Paul saying that there must be racial unity in the body of Christ because Christ's salvation has come for all? That sounds rather progressive. Paul must be enlightened. But then I would turn to Romans chapter 1, where Paul, the apostle, equally inspired by God, equally writing the words of God, says this, For the women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and then likewise are consumed with passion for one another, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Are you saying Paul considers homosexuality a sin? That sounds conservative. Paul must be in my camp. And so when I say to you what I've often said before, we are not a red church. We are not a blue church. We are a Jesus church. What I'm also really saying to you is this. You have to give up reading the Bible through a very narrow and a recently modern and a uniquely American political binary, right and left, Republican and Democrat, red and blue. Because if you do not give up reading the Bible this way,
to Jesus. And I would say to you, very good point. <laughs> but at the very same time, Jesus lived and moved in the first century of Palestine that was right with political controversies. And these political factions in Jesus' day were just as contentious, if not more so, and just as divisive, if not more so, than our modern cultural moment. And so there were, by my count, six distinct and six distinct political parties in Jesus' day. You think two warring factions is bad, you don't have to see nothing yet. And so here they are. First, the Sadducees. They were the wealthy landowning elites who controlled the temple. The priests and the high priests typically came from the Sadducees. The Pharisees were a middle-class movement, very popular with the masses who sought to be the arbiters of Old Testament law. The Essenes were the third party who believed that the Jewish government was hopelessly and irredeemably corrupt and eventually withdrew into the wilderness to wait for the end of the world. Don't you sometimes want to be an Essene? The community at Qumran who produced the Dead Sea Scrolls were Essenes. Fourth party were the Zealots. Now the Zealots were a lot like the Pharisees religiously, but they were nationalists who resisted Roman rule even to the point of armed insurrection as embodied by the Maccabees who sought to overthrow Roman rule with violence. The Herodians were a political party that owed its authority from King Herod, favored Greek customs, and, unlike the zealots, were committed to maintaining the peace and the status quo, law and order, under Herodian rule. Sixth party were the scribes. These were the lawyers and teachers under the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish council controlled by the Sadducees. And so I ask you a very important question. Which political party captured Jesus' heart in the first century? To what political party did Jesus regularly write great checks of affection? When did Jesus put obedience to the scriptures lower than his political inclinations? Answer, never. Rather, he blasted the Sadducees for not believing in the resurrection, for lining their own pockets at the expense of the poor. When Jesus went and overturned the money changers at the temple, it would have been the Sadducees who suffered financial loss on their heads. He blasted the Pharisees and the scribes for being hypocrites, you brood of vipers. You lay heavy burdens on all the people that you yourself can never fulfill. He blasted the Herodians. Publicly, everyone knew that Herod and John the Baptist were mired in controversy. John the Baptist had called out Herod for unlawfully taking his sister-in-law after divorcing his first wife. So Jesus weighs in. Among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Controversial? You bet. He blasted the zealots. 
boys were viewed as perfectly legitimate outlets for the sexual male desire. If a man slept with prostitutes before marriage, he was still counted as a virgin. If during marriage, it was not considered adultery. One Christian bishop described Roman sexual policy as, quote, forbidding adulteries, building brothels. This Christian sexual ethic was radically countercultural then, as it is now. Who were the winners of this Christian cultural revolution in the first few centuries? Women, slaves, prostitutes, and young boys were all big winners of a Christian sexual counterculture that was so attractive to so many. You see, when the early church insisted and kept insisting that sex was reserved exclusively for marriage between one man and one woman, it was completely subversive and yet completely liberating because it was good and true and beautiful and according to God's design. Fourth, we need future the early church. The early church was a community strongly committed to the sacred nature of life, the protection of children against infanticide and abortion. The early church prioritized children. The early church rescued abandoned children. The early church placed children in Christian homes, including some with disabilities caused by unsuccessful abortions. According to the 12 tables of the Roman law, quote, deformed infants shall be killed, infanticide. Our own son, Tristan, would have been killed under Roman law. The widely circulated Didache, the teaching of the 12 apostles, which was widely used in the early church, as a catechism all over the Mediterranean world, spoke directly against these Roman practices. In sum, the church embodied a countercultural ethic against widely accepted practices backed by Roman law. Fifth, the early church was a peacemaking community committed to practicing forgiveness, peacemaking, and a non-retaliatory posture. MLK and the Civil Rights Movement has roots going all the way back to the early church. And so it was these five identifying features all together that revolutionized and transformed the entire Roman Empire for the cause of Christ. Now I've just run through, very quickly, four centuries, 400 years of the early church, countercultural in five major ways. And some of you, I know what you were doing. Even though I just warned you against it, you were, what were you doing? You were laying a modern American political binary over these issues. That is, you agreed with this one, you disagreed with that one. You supported this one, but you were suspicious of that one. Why? Because the first two sound progressive. The third and the fourth sound conservative. The fifth doesn't easily fall into the binary. And so imagine with me a scenario for a moment. Imagine me preaching in Vermont. 